Welcome, listeners, to www.ironradio.org, the website and podcast for all things strength sports and sports nutrition. With your hosts, Lonnie Lowry. Remember, Phil is like a gnarled old oak tree held together with scar tissue and bone spurs. Rob Fortney. And I'm telling you, the pain that I would suffer was beyond excruciating. And Phil Stevens. Do it, Rob. You'll kill all those nerves. Thanks for listening. Welcome, IronRadio.org listeners. This is Lonnie Lowry. I am an exercise physiology and nutrition professor, and I'm a former competitive bodybuilder. Hey, Rob Fortress Fortney here. Here I'm a former editor at the Rest in Peace Muscle Mag International, uh, former competitive bodybuilder powerlifter. Don't sound so excited, Rob. We missed you around here. Um, this is Phil Stevens. I'm a competitive powerlifter, Highland Games athlete, and strength coach. Um, that's about it, among, among other things. And <laughs> we're, we are excited to have Dr. Fred Hatfield with us today. Thanks for joining us. I'm glad to be here. Mm-hmm. Anybody who doesn't know, uh, you know, Dr. Hatfield, also known as Dr. Squat, he's a world champion powerlifter. You won the what IPF Worlds in '83 and '86. Squatted 1,014 pounds in the 110 kilo class. Um, geez, you know, also a PhD holder in sports sciences, president of the ISSA, um, among other things. You know, retired Marine, just a, a whole list of accomplishments. Um, we're going to talk to Fred about, you know, his past, his future, and everything else in the, in the strength world um, after some news. Yeah, Fortress, let's talk about uh, quickly uh, Muscle Mag International. So, what are your thoughts on that? Um, you know, it, it hit me like a ton of bricks only because and my first thought, my very first thought when I heard about the whole kind of collapse of RK Publishing and all that was that if Bob Kennedy had still been alive, this would not happen. Um, and that's the overriding thought I have about the whole thing. It, it, it's very sad. Um, you even said the end of an era. Lonnie, I agree with that. Um, but you know, it's been coming for a long time, the whole idea, you know, the internet really is destroying print media um, and only the the ones that have been around for so long and have huge budgets behind them can kind of survive in this kind of climate but um, I've actually yet to speak with a couple of my friends that still work there uh, and I will be um, but yeah it's sad but there's a co- you were even saying Lonnie there's a few things that kind of you know kind of moved the situation towards where it is right now and that that is um I don't like to get into this too too much, but certainly the whole advent of the whole muscle tech thing um, and had had advertorials and all that kind of thing led us to kind of where we are right now. And cause it, it did cause sort of change the flavor of the magazine that it was almost well, not that muscle magazines were ever free of advertisements, but it it was almost as if muscle mag was owned by muscle tech for the last decade yeah which you know. which i can tell you a lot of people believe that to be true and the truth of the matter is it that's not true um <clears throat> but i can say that muscle mag has been limping along largely on the advertising dollars spent by muscle tech <clears throat> and they you know I, I think people who know me and know the situation know how i feel about paul gardner and the whole thing and um kind of holding Bob Kennedy over the barrel as far as, like, you know, advertising money spent towards the magazine and so forth and um, making demands, knowing kind of the barrel that they were holding them over. Um, and then, of course, you know, with Tosca Reno or whatever her name is, the, the, the woman that Bob married and 
kind of took upon himself for as a pet project. You know, her her whole thing, and ta- I think that took a lot away from him and his focus on Muscle Mag. Um, and that's not speaking ill about Bob at all. I'm just saying that. He, and when she was, when he did die, and she was kind of left, in, and, and you also have to consider the whole um, thing about all the ex-weeder guys. You know, the few ex-weeder guys that were hired. Um, by Bob to kind of rejuvenate the magazine. In my opinion, in my opinion, and, it's, and I've heard other people say the same thing, it, it kind of really destroyed the originality that Muscle Mag one at one time had. Um, in a lot of ways, they brought a lot more professionalism to the magazine, but with that professionalism came a lot more of a generic feel to it um, and less of an identity to it. So I don't think that helped at all. Um, so, and like I say, it, the only thing I can say is that if Bob was alive, I really don't think this would have happened. As I've said in a couple posts online, you know, say what you will about Bob. The one thing that is absolutely true is the guy was a survivor, and the guy was able to keep that magazine afloat um, a dozen times over, where it looked like there was no chance that it would ever live. So, I don't know, but I'm I'm, I'm happy he's not around to see what's happened you know people have speculated online some people who have ex-employees and so forth saying that you know when they moved into the new building that they're in now that was the beginning of the end because of the rent and them trying to renegotiate the terms of the lease and all this type of thing and you know um, monies that were still owed and so forth so I, I don't know but it is very sad there was some hope I heard online of uh, people suggesting that maybe after the bankruptcy the title of the magazine will be bought by somebody else and somehow still survive. Yeah, uh, I've, I've read that too. Um, but I mean, let's be realistic. Does I mean, does anybody who really was at one time a fan of that magazine or whatever? Does it, I mean, it, it it would never be the same. I mean, it, it's not the same because Bob's not here. And I mean, you know, the other person that's most um, important to that magazine, Johnny Fitness. You know, he, uh, you know, he he's largely retired now. And you know, without Bob around at the same time. And I mean, in a lot of the people, a lot of the personalities that were around that made that magazine the original kind of entity that it was, they've all gone as well. So, well, there know, was a it, time in the 80s and 90s where that was my favorite mag. You know, they had this sort of Venice <clears throat> Beach gossip section and, the, you know, it was just, it was entertaining. And, um, yeah, it I don't kind know. of, I, it, the, the period that you're referring to, Lonnie, I think kind of Muscle Mag kind of captured the, the magic that was around at that time, um, and and that's largely gone. So, in kind of a weird, ironic way, it's almost kind of like, um, it almost makes sense that Muscle Meg would fold, you know, when when the the sport itself has become so much less of what it was at one time, and that that sounds very critical and maybe jaded but i mean i don't think i i, I don't think by landslide that i'm the only person that would ever say that I well mean, certainly different i mean anybody who visits venice beach it's not the same place it was even in the you know in the 80s or even yeah. when i was even when i was out there in 92 uh living out in southern california it, it was a a different experience than i had read about you know and right. i'll tell you what else too this is sort of a segue uh to our guest but um Someone on our listener forum actually said, you know, Powerlifting USA, they, they're they gone now, too. You know, and they were questioning whether print magazines really have much of a future anyway, other than basically advertorials, you know. And if you look at some of the newer magazines, that is sort of almost the mandatory way many of them have gone. 
Uh, but now Powerlifting USA and Muscle Mag International are gone. You know. Yeah. Well, what what do you think, Fred? Because you you kind of were amongst the heyday of all that kind of thing, and of course you used to, um, you know, have certain relations with these magazines. What what do you think about the whole thing? Yeah. Well, those are the years that I worked uh, out in uh, Woodland Hills with Joe Weeder, and I was uh, an editor for Muscle and Fitness magazine, and I was the editor in chief of Sports Fitness, which later became Men's Fitness. Uh, I launched that magazine for Joe. And uh, all I can say is we had, I think, the real cream of the crop of, of, uh, of writers from around the world uh, working for us. And they were paid well. Nowadays, writers can't sell their stuff but for peanuts. And they're actually running around looking to see if uh, they can get somebody to print their stuff free. Yeah, so yeah. you get what you pay for. <laughs> and that's, that's all yeah. I can say. That's well, you know, Lon- Lon- Lonnie can definitely vouch for the fact that that was kind of like the beginning of the end for me kind of as far as pursuing this thing full time was because, yeah, I mean, what I was once being paid for pieces was, you know, you'd have to fight tooth and nail just to have them to buy the thing. And then they'd pay, like yeah. you say, they'd pay you literally half or a third of what you used to make and so exactly. you know anybody who's halfway you know intelligent or or has some self-esteem eventually is going to say well to hell with this you know because right. the quality you know the quality and the product's still there but they're not paying for it and they don't and, and it just got ridiculous like the whole thing with muscle mega and and certainly who they brought up over that was the one that was kind of being the filter for all this stuff i mean he just became so I don't know what else to use word, but Nazi-like as far as what you would write and what he would accept that you'd almost, he'd want so many changes and revisions to everything you wrote that eventually it would be like, well, why would you even put my name on it? I didn't even write it anymore. It was like, you just wrote the whole thing. So, exactly. Rob, now you're mentioning somebody who came over from Weeder? Yes. Yes. Absolutely, right. I am. Yes. Um, so, you know, and, and it, it, so it got to the point where I'm like, you know, I've had it with this. I'm done. I'm not even going to try to do this anymore. And that was the, like, like you say, Fred, it was like, you know, you get what you pay for. And, and, you know, got to the point where all the people that actually had some flair and some talent or some originality or some zest in their writing just thought to hell with it. Yeah. You know? So. Well, I agree with Fred. A lot of it's about the money, too. I mean, no, e- no. even with online writing, um, when late 90s early 2000s something you know like a thousand dollars or more for to pen an article for well pen is not the right word for for online you know uh, publications that was cut in half and then more and more you know and it it just devalues the whole system even even with the electronic publishing i think Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. well as far as i'm concerned the electronic publishing that's going on now is at a very low low uh, level of uh, sophistication and uh, and uh, uh, I'm talking about from a scientific perspective everybody likes to regard themselves as an expert (laughs) (laughs) yes it it becomes maddening after a while listening to some of the young fellas coming up saying well you know I've been I've been going to the gym for eight years now and I I can (laughs) you know you know Fred it, we're laughing because that's such a theme on this show. Yeah, it's a resounding theme on this show. Yeah, yeah I, can, I can understand that. <clears throat> it, it, oh. It's a day gone by, gentlemen. Yeah. 
No, and you're seeing the best writers now. I mean, honestly, if they're still writing, a lot of them are writing for their own sites. They're like, why am I going to sell it for 150 bucks? Yeah. I'll just put up my own site. That's exactly you know? Well, that's what's happening. That's, that's what I do. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. You know? Unfortunately, so. that can be good for the experienced guys, but it also opens self-publishing, opens a venue for anybody who, like Fred says, you know, I've been at this for a couple of years. Well, you yeah, know, and now, it does. Yeah. Well, that's why you you can't separate the wheat from the chaff, you know. Well, that's why I've been saying that the internet presents such a huge range because you have the guys who are just perpetuating nonsense over and over again, but you also have the guys that do know what they're talking about, and it's almost like this is a battle where they're they're trying to bring a certain balance of you know like um, Mm -hmm. of of real truthful information back to it because because there's so many people that are in a way um almost combating the truth you know be through their own ignorance um, well because there's so little money as fred was sort of pointing out now that the the primary drive to write a lot of these things or go video or what have you is is self-promotion rather than getting paid to do good work and that's right it degrades the system you know i mean that's why you see people i mean even Back at the turn of the century, that sounds funny, but, you know, I would put 20, 30 references. When I write an article, it would be a theme with a little literature review, you know, so what does the science have to say about this? And now it's, it's personal belief and opinion yeah. spewed like they're facts from people, and they, they believe their opinion is fact because they perceive themselves as an expert, and they're putting everything out there just to market, you know, their own webpage or whatever, instead of to try to educate and get paid for it. Yeah. It just boggles my mind to see how many guys are out there hyping their own system of training as though they were the ones who discovered it. Bless you, sir. <laughs> it just go, it goes on and on. Now, from, you know, I won't even bother mentioning names. You guys know them as well or better than I. Uh, I just I just kind of close my mind to it right now. But what's happening is that these fellows are putting out articles on a system of training. Uh, and claiming it to be the best system out there, and they they have no idea where that system came from. They claim to have developed it themselves, but I can point to uh, back in the 40s and 50s where that stuff originated. Yeah. You know, yeah. you know yeah. occasion point would be CrossFit. There's nothing new about that. That's the way we all trained <laughs> no, back in those right. days. Rebranding, it seems to be the name yeah, of the that, game. That's what it is. Yeah, and then the P90F yeah. or something like that. I, you know, it just blows my mind. And kettlebells, right? Wherever, were don't you realize that kettlebells were from the 1800s? <laughs> <laughs> no, you just ruined my segue because I almost was about to say, well, you know, let's just get to your origins then, Fred. <laughs> but <laughs> no, Fred doesn't go back that far. No, not that far. Right. <laughs> before we go into that, I want to give one shout out before we. Uh, get deep in with Fred. Um, I had uh, one of our listeners got a hold of me and was wondering if we could help them out by shooting a word out. They're helping the firefighters in Colorado because they're fighting wildfires again, and they're trying to get people to send in uh, sports drinks uh, because I get the average firefighter loses two to two and a half liters of fluid per hour out there, and this and that. And these guys are actually, if you send it to their gym, they're taking it out personally and handing it to them out in the field. Oh wow! <clears throat> so. Um, I'll try and get him to post on the page, too. But if anybody's interested in helping out, um, get a hold of Nathan Craig on Facebook, or you can just send this stuff to Fit Body Boot Camp, 1045-D, 
Garden of the Gods Road, W, Colorado Springs, Colorado 80907. They're helping out the firefighters out there that are fighting all kinds of fires again in Colorado. So I wanted to shoot that out there. Hey, let's let's go ahead and go to break. That's a nice segue for break, actually. Um, okay. Just a little public service announcement there. That's good. Uh, and we'll, <laughs> when we come back, we're going to dive into the history and some of the opinions and facts that uh, Dr. Hetfield has. Hi, this is Dr. Lonnie Lowry, and on behalf of Phil and Rob, I'd just like to let listeners know that if you love us or you hate us, we'd like you to leave a comment or perhaps vote for us on iTunes. It helps us out quite a bit on the popularity side of things. Uh, you can also follow uh, Dr. Lowry, me, on Twitter. Uh, it's Lawnman7 on Twitter if you want to do that. We also have a Facebook page, the Iron Radio uh, listeners page. So... Uh, whether it's leaving a comment or voting for us or following us on Twitter or Facebook, uh, that would be fantastic. Also, uh, occasionally Rob or myself will write an article for another website and Phil will as well. So lots of ways to um, interact, uh, follow us in other media, and vote for us and uh, keep things going strong on Iron Radio. Thanks. Hi, this is Dr. Lowry with an update on the protein book that you hear about in the ad at the end of the show. Uh, if you simply Google CRC Press in protein, uh, there's a new development. On the right side of the page, you can see ebook, and there's a purchase slash rent option. And the cool thing here is if you check that out now, because they have an agreement with Vital Book, uh, you can actually download the ebook for $69 US dollars. So that's 31% off the $99.95 uh, cover price. So that's pretty fantastic. $69, I think that's going to drop it into the affordable range for a lot of people. And you can even rent it. Uh, lower down the page, they have 180-day rentals and one-year rentals. So you can access the book in electronic format and get some of this juicy information. So thanks. Like your weekly fix of Iron Radio? In addition to being a popular institute on iTunes, we are also on email. Simply go to www.ironradio.org and sign up for the voluntary email. You'll get a once-per-week email, no more, that's little more than the show notes and a link to the audio. So go for it. Okay, so we're back after the short little break there. And again, we have, uh, you know, Dr. Fred Hatfield with us. And, you know, for all of you guys who don't know, I kind of gave a, a brief breakdown of who he is. If you don't know, you need to find out, especially with our, our talk we just had about, uh, you know, all the people that are publishing out there now that probably shouldn't be and things like that. But um, what we want to get into is, um, you know, how did you get first started in, in, in training and physical culture and stuff like that? Oh, that goes way back. <laughs> You're right. Uh, I was about, uh, oh, I would say maybe 12 years old. Walking home from school one day, uh, I peeked in somebody's garage on the way home, and there was uh, three or four teenage fellas, you know, much older than myself, lifting weights, which in retrospect was probably an old Weeder set or a Bob Hoffman set or some such thing. 
Anyway, they saw me looking because I stopped and I was watching. I had never seen weightlifting before. I lived on a farm and all I ever threw around was bales of hay and stuff like that. And they always had me loading the truck because I'm the only one that could throw the bale of hay high enough up onto the uh, pile of uh, bales to uh, get any work done, you know. So I was I was a pretty strong kid. So they called me up there to see if I could lift the weight. They, I think they wanted to show off. But I, I picked the weight up and I pressed it four or five times and I put it back down and I looked around. Turns out, not a single one of those kids was able to lift that weight. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, well, you know, I, I felt pretty good about myself and I said, man, I would love to do this. And I did. I, I, I got some uh, cement and I poured it in an, uh, in an old car tire uh, on each end of a pole. And that was my first barbell. And uh, I don't know how that's much old school right there. That that's yeah. old school. Yeah. And uh, when I wanted to do bench presses, I lay down on the floor and roll the weight over my face and and jimmy it up and and do it anyhow I could. But mostly we did the Olympic lifts, snatch and press and a clean and jerk. And the only way I had of learning how to do that stuff, since we didn't even have TV back in those days, so I'd I'd, I'd uh, take the book out of the library. And I don't know if you ever saw it. These books used to have, uh, you'd flip the pages and watch the actual lift take place as uh, as you uh, flip the pages fast enough. <laughs> That's how I learned how to lift. And by the time I was, uh, oh, I guess 16 or 17, I entered my first contest. And it was the Connecticut State Championship. And I broke all the records and I uh, won. And uh, that night I won Teenage Mr. Connecticut. And so I had a pretty good first outing. <laughs> yeah. So you did a bodybuilding show? Is that what you're saying? Oh, yeah, I used to be a bodybuilder. Okay, I, so I, I, it's just it's fun to see the the strong connection between strength and bodybuilding that yes. sort of been lost these it days. It was very prevalent back in those days because you know one of the things that they judged you in bodybuilding for was uh, athletic ability, and most of the bodybuilders would. Uh, show their athletic ability by uh, their record in Olympic weightlifting because it was so closely matched. Powerlifting didn't even exist back in those days. And uh, that's what I did. And uh, and uh, I went as far as winning the uh, Mr. Mid-America title, which qualified me for the Mr. America, but uh, it conflicted with the powerlifting meet on that particular day. So I didn't, I didn't go to the uh, Mr. America. I went to the powerlifting meet. Not that I would have won the America, mind you. <laughs> and is that when you started powerlifting then? Yeah, that was uh, right at the beginning of my powerlifting career. Right around the time that powerlifting first began. Or within five years of it, anyway. One thing I want to touch on, of course, we want to touch on the 1,014-pound the squat. One thing that I found interesting, and something we've talked about a lot on here, was you set that record when you turned 45. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, you know, one of the things, one of our other resounding themes on the show is it takes a long time to get strong. <laughs> and, well, it didn't, you know, that's for sure. You know, I, I usually tell people how embarrassed I am that it took me so long. <laughs> well, I mean, nowadays you see all these 18, 19, 20-year-old kids come in and they expect to be a 1,000-pound squatter in, in 12 weeks. Yeah, <laughs> and, and, then, and then what happened? They end yeah. up putting on all of that crazy clothes uh, that you can't even squat unless you put a thousand pounds on your back, you know. 
and and they come back and tell me that they broke my record. <laughs> Are you offended by that? <laughs> no, I, I, I'm, I'm, I, I'll tell you what I am. I'm very very sad because they they have they have uh, all but ruined the sport of powerlifting. Yeah. People regard them as circus freaks. You know, yeah. they're not strong guys. You know, and 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 when the when the audience watches these guys walk up on stage, barely able to walk because the suit is so tight, or in the bench press with their arms crossed over their chest because they can't put them down by their sides, they 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 laugh. They're laughed at. These people are laughed at yeah. by the public. You know, and and don't think that the John Q public doesn't recognize what's going on. You know, they see the supportive gear that these guys are wearing, and they understand that. They're not displaying strength at all. They're just displaying how strong their fabric is. Yeah. Mm, yeah. Yeah, we've had many discussions on, on here about the relative merits of, you know, the support gear and so forth. I I figured you'd have uh, something to say about that. Well, no, yeah, uh, that's definitely one of the questions of the... Uh, listen, don't get me wrong. If I were lifting today, I'm sure I'd be wearing that same stuff because I, you, if, if you got to compete against the best... You can't give them that big of an advantage. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, I don't. I don't blame the lifters. I blame, you know, the circumstances uh, of uh, of history. I, how, what can I say? You know, the, the lobbyists got these clothes in. You know, uh, by lobbyists I mean the people who manufacture that stuff. Yes. And, Wouldn't you say it was largely due to? I mean. Companies finding a way to monetize powerlifting. Yeah. I mean, originally you'd buy a singlet, a belt. Maybe some knee wraps. And you're ready to go for a decade. Yeah. You know, nowadays now you got to buy a suit and a shirt and then maybe briefs to go with it. And after one or two meets, that's wore out if it makes it that long. Yeah. And you got to buy another one and another one. Um, yeah, it's a it's definitely it's a different day. And I mean, I know a lot of I'm close friends with a lot of people that are that are elite powerlifters that are elite equipped powerlifters, but uh, it's definitely a different sport. Yeah, and uh, you know I don't. Like I said, I don't begrudge the guys and gals that are having to do yeah. this, and uh, it's, I, I just uh, it just makes me very sad to see what's happening. Yeah. No, that's one thing I was happy to see when I when I launched my new federation. You were one of the first people to step up and, and, and tell us it was a great thing. You know that we're <clears throat> trying to bring it back to you. Got to walk out the squat. You know our raw competition is you don't get anything. Our equipped division is you get a belt and knee wraps. Yeah. And uh, you have to do a full meet. That was another thing that that bugged me is all the push pull bench only this that. It's like, well, if you want to compete in powerlifting, you need to do all three. So, um, you know what I always uh, found odd, Phil, was that a lot of the individual type things you'll see like push pull, and they leave the squat out. So that's sort of relevant to uh, to doctor squat here. What do you feel? Yeah. How do you feel about that? I mean, um, you like the idea of having all three events? I'm guessing. Well, that's what the sport of powerlifting is. But mm-hmm. I, I don't have a problem with having specialists. We, you know, mm-hmm. before I became a powerlifter, I, I was a gymnast all through college, and mm-hmm. uh, I competed in the nationals and gymnastics, everything like that. And in order to compete in the nationals, all you had to do was be good on uh, any given event. I competed in uh, five out of the six events, uh, so I didn't compete in all of the uh, gymnastic events. But uh, there were some guys that would come in and compete only on side horse, for example. And uh, yeah. these are the guys that uh, that won the national championships because they were specialists. Yes. That's and, a cool perspective, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
So squat was your favorite, though? Do you think the squat is the king of exercises? <laughs> well, yeah, actually, I do think that. And it wasn't my favorite lift. It was the most difficult lift, <laughs> you mm-hmm. know. Let's face it, you know, you're using a, a, high, a very high percentage of, of the, all of the muscles of, in your body. I would mm-hmm. say, you know, 70% or more of all of the muscles in your body are involved in squatting. So it's that's why it's the king of all exercises. If all you ever did was squats, you'd get yourself pretty strong, even in the upper body. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. So, yeah. I've, uh, I've always said that if you're going to go, if if I had a desert island lift that I had to do, I'd choose the squat because of the same thing. Because you'd probably retain most, of, you know, the great a greater overall body strength with just squat than most anything else. Even bodybuilders will say that, you know, if you're stuck on a plateau or you want to gain lots of weight, the squat's actually going to put size on your upper body as well, you know, because... Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And, you know, as I said earlier, I, I, I grew up on a farm, and uh, I worked hard when I was a boy. And the, uh, the foundation that that hard work gave me, especially in my lower back and uh, all of the, what they now call the core muscles, the uh, internal and external obliques and, and the lower back... Uh, infraspinatus, uh, shoulder muscles, all, all of that, uh, the rotator cuff muscles. That stood me in good stead in powerlifting. And uh, uh, that, together with the fact that I, I, I had a vertical jump of pretty close to 40 inches or more, and so I had a lot of explosiveness in my legs. And that also stood me in good stead. In the sport. Yeah, there's a great picture of you doing a vertical jump after one of your lifts. Yeah, well, I used to uh, I, I used to do a vertical jump right before <clears throat> deadlifting. So I do a vertical jump, and immediately upon uh, descending to the floor, I would I would uh, bend down and grab the weight and, and explode up off the floor with it. Uh, it didn't matter if I was off an inch or two on the on the grip or something like that, mm. um, but it, it would give me a stretch reflex, and uh, right. it was good for another 10, 20 pounds. Interesting. Um, I got a good listener question. I think it'll lead into some other stuff. Um, it's from Arthur Lynch. He has a question for you, and it, uh, he, you mentioned it on another podcast you're on that when you adopted scientific training, that's when you made your greatest gains. He's wondering if you could discuss that a little bit more in depth. What scientific training actually is to you? Okay. Yeah, that's actually a good question. You see, back when the sport began, there was little or no science to lifting. Nobody. Nobody had ever done any, uh, any uh, sophisticated research of any sort into the general area of limit strength. And I'm going to tell you why. Because in all the world of sport, powerlifting is the only sport that, that requires maximum limit strength. Olympic weightlifting didn't. No other sport did. The Russians, and I studied in the Soviet Union years before the wall went down. I studied under Verkashansky and Medvedev. And these were the, the leaders in, this, in, the, in the entire world of sports for the Soviets. Holy mackerel, Dr. Hatfield. I did not know you studied <laughs> under Medvedev. He was the originator of periodization, you know, back in the mid Actually not. That was Verkashansky that was. Okay, okay. Old and, school masters there. Yeah, they were the old school masters. And, uh, and that's where I learned my science. And them, them together with a German fellow by the name of Schmidtbleicher, uh, I, I saw the complete picture, and I said, this is how I must train. Yeah. And uh, I wrote a book, uh, perhaps the first book 
ever written on powerlifting. Terry Todd wrote a book on powerlifting, but it it didn't get it. It didn't die. It delves into the uh, hows and whys or the science behind it. He just liked to talk about himself a lot. And uh, and he wasn't even that good a lifter, but 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 he could, he was a good writer nonetheless. And uh, and his book was called Inside Powerlifting. My book was a complete guide to power training, and it was. I believe the first book ever written on the subject where I delved into uh, a lot of the science. Nobody even back in those days, nobody even knew the difference between red and white muscle fibers or myotatic response or anything like that. They didn't, they simply didn't know. And they had no concept of periodization. Uh, and, and, uh, you see what happens is that in the Olympic lifts, the lifts are over with in literally a half a second, three quarters mm-hmm. of a second at most, mm-hmm. and uh, and your all of the deep fibers that uh, have a very high excitation threshold, you can't even tap into those fibers inside of a half a second or three quarters of a second. It takes at least that long to get maximum recruitment, and that's what powerlifting taps into. And you have to understand that. That's why I tried so hard. To lift as explosively as I could, every single every single lift I did, I would explode all the way through that lift, and that kind of training, which I coined the phrase compensatory acceleration training, where you compensate for improving leverage during the lift by pushing the weight even harder. So, <clears throat> you see what I'm saying? So let's say you have 500 pounds on a bar, just for argument's sake. Uh, how much weight do you have to apply to lift that weight? Yeah. Well, something more than 500. Otherwise, you're just going to be holding <laughs> the weight in space. And you can't hold the weight for any any length of time without losing a lot of strength from fatigue. So you get to lift over with as quickly as you can. And, and, you, and you compensate for improving leverages throughout the lift by accelerating the bar. And that was the main breakthrough for me, understanding that simple little concept. I want all my lifters who are listening to the podcast later on to, to listen to this, because it's something I try and preach to them uh, weekly. <laughs> you know, don't just stand up with the weight. You know, get up as quick as you can. Yeah. And the whole the whole um, long nose, I've used the your terminology, compensator acceleration, for years and years and years, because that's probably one of the most fundamental things that I ever kind of learned that made sense to me as far as, you know, weight training is concerned. Yeah, well that that wasn't around before I came along. <laughs> Not that I Well know. no, and I've I've always yeah. I've always when people ask me, I always said it was it was you that coined that phrase. So yeah. you know I, I If I can ask, so a lot of these observations, was this um something that you were drawn toward because of your education? I mean, why did you pick up your your doctorate, for example? Were you just fascinated by all this and wanted to be better? Or uh, were these things you were seeing before or after your formal education? I I got my doctorate in in, uh, the social sciences of sport, which is a combination of sports psychology and sociology, but also modal learning. Mm -hmm. It's one of the the, uh, branches of social sciences. Uh, and that's what my doctoral competencies were in, and so I was re- I was very much at home studying this stuff. I also did a lot of postgraduate work in uh, exercise physiology, 
And I studied under some of the some of the best out there. So I was I was very fortunate for that. And then going to Soviet Union and uh, and Schmidt Bleicher's work in the uh, 80s on, on strength put it all together for me. And uh, by that time, I was already starting to make a little bit of a name for myself. And I and uh, and then when I started to apply this compensatory acceleration training, you know, things began to really fly for me. And I started breaking world records after world record. And uh, because of that, I started training a lot of other athletes. They they got wind of what I was doing, and and I got athletes from practically every sport coming to my my home gym and training with me. Football. I try out trained guys like Lyle Alzado. I trained uh, a lot of boxers, Evander Holyfield, people like that. <clears throat> Tiffany Chin, the great figure skater. You know, just from all kinds of different sports. And and the the overriding, overarching technique of training that I used with these athletes that made all the difference in the world for every athlete was compensatory acceleration training. You see, in all the world of sport, speed is king. And that applies to powerlifting as well. Yeah, no, I mean, the lifts are, that's one thing people don't get. I mean, they call it the slow lifts, but... Well, they're, they're only slow because they're freaking heavy. Yeah, they're only slow because they're heavy. <laughs> By the way, yeah. don't you understand why dumbbells and barbells were invented? To slow your movement speed down so you could get maximum recruitment. <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. That's, yeah, that's definitely one thing I didn't understand is, uh, is that. And, you know, then you can get the whole argument that weightlifting and powerlifting need to switch names. Um, but, yeah, you know, well, that's yeah. different. No kidding. So. You know, I want to ask you about um, something that a lot of our younger uh, listeners probably are not even aware of, but the whole WBF thing and your involvement in that, the World Bodybuilding Federation. Yeah. Oh, you know, it turned out I was kind of sitting around doing very little. I was doing some work with Lee Haney at the time, so I moved to Atlanta so I could be closer to him. And uh, right around the time that uh, my work with Lee was done, I, I just out of the clear blue without a call from Vince McMahon from Titan Sports, World Wrestling Federation. And he said that he was going to start a, uh, a bodybuilding federation and would I come and help him as his director of uh, research and development. And he offered me a lot of money, so I went. <laughs> it was a no-brainer for me. And it uh, turns out I, I became close friends with Vince. He was a nice, nice guy in real life. You know, I don't know what he's like. I don't watch the stuff on TV, but... Uh, he's just a real nice fella, very pleasant to work with and to hang around and travel all over the world with the guy before I was done there. But the World Bodybuilding Federation was a bust, unfortunately. It, it just simply didn't work out. Vince made the mistake, in my opinion, of putting his wife in charge of the World Bodybuilding Federation program. And she didn't have the slightest idea what weight training or bodybuilding, the world of bodybuilding was all about. She didn't have the heart and soul. Um, in any sense of the word. And so she was making business decisions in the dark. Mm-hmm. And one of the things she did, for example, was she hired this girl from Playgirl magazine to be the editor-in-chief of our bodybuilding magazine. You can imagine how <laughs> yeah. how bad that was. And uh, so it, it just simply didn't work out. And Vince was used to making a lot bigger profit margins for his hard work than what you can get 
selling nutritional supplements or putting on bodybuilding shows. We, you know, it was hard thing for him to accept that uh, 40 or 50 percent profit margin was really good <laughs> because he's used <laughs> to uh, doubling or tripling his money, filling up the, the silver dome and stuff like that, you know. Right. Oh, if I could, if I could always pull in forty or fifty percent, I'd be happy. Yeah, no kidding. Yeah. <laughs> not, not Vince. And so well, that's yeah. how we were discussing just the other week about how the money that's available in in fitness in general and this sort of thing is is not the equivalent of other industries. You know? No, no, it's not. It's not. And uh, and so I mean, it's a shame. You know, we're a backwater industry, and that's just the way it is right now. Uh, maybe down the road it'll grow into uh, something more important. But you have to understand what the condition of the fitness conditioning is in this United States, where over half the population is obese. Yeah. You know, and so, like, they really care about bodybuilding? No. No. Well, and the other half, I mean, I'd say at least half of the other half who isn't obese is severely undertrained and weak. You know, they can barely move themselves around. That's correct. right. That's right. <laughs> Until that is, I don't see, you know, the, the last big fitness boom, I'm sorry, the, I would say the first big fitness boom was at the turn of the last century, in the 1900s, early 1900s, where they had what was referred to as physical culture. And they had their act together back in those days. They didn't have the science. You know, uh, they were they were still talking about Having a tight-fitting jock strap, you know, and that was the key to getting fit. But you can believe that it was, it was strange stuff that they did, you know. And that's where the uh, where the what's what's the name of that uh, program that they use nowadays for uh, flexibility training? Uh, oh, Pilates. Yeah, Pilates. Yeah. Now, so Pilates was a guy that had a flexibility program, and when you take a look at it, he had all kinds of stretches that were seriously dangerous you know and he, they didn't understand things back in those days and to just in wholesale accept pilates teaching as uh, the the core of a modern day flexibility training program is insane but they're doing it this is why it's great to get guys who have you know lived through this and know these people like you on the show fred because you know I don't even think most people who get interested in some of these trends, they don't think about the history of it or where it came from or, you know, what might be wrong with it. So, Yeah, it, well, yeah I see it more and more, you know. And uh, so I don't blame that for, for, for the fact that uh, Americans are obese. I, I don't blame that at all. But what people are doing is they're, they're uh, grasping at straws, trying to find something that will give them sort of a... Uh, uh, a niche marketplace, and then they'll go off and work their little niche and make a few dollars and die happy or something. I don't know, you know. But I'm not about that. I I want to do things right. I, you know, on on the scale of good, better, best, would you accept a pill from a doctor that was good when you knew that there was a super pill available? The doctor says to you, "Here, I want you to take this pill. Your hair is going to fall out, and uh, it only works marginally well sometimes on some people. And there's all kinds of other side effects, but uh, you know, I think you ought to give it a try." Yeah. And then you go to another doctor, and he holds his hand out and says, "Here, I got this pill. No side effects. You know, it, it's going to cure you. You'll never get the disease again, and you're going to be healthy for the rest of your life. Which pill are you going to take?" 
Yeah. So good, better, right. best. What's it going to be, folks? You know. Yeah. And I, I want what's best. Yeah. And sometimes that means I had to go digging for it, and, and even creating a new science around it. And that's uh, well, I mean, I think it's it's something we see in this industry that you don't see in a lot of others. Is there is a lack of you know learning the history? Yeah. From a lot of, you know, you take out any other, you go to school for anything else, and you. First, you learn the footsteps that were walked before you, yeah. <laughs> before you start making well, new ones. Wouldn't it be nice if people, if people, uh, you know, didn't repeat the mistakes of, of yesterday? You know, what do they yes. call insanity? Uh, that 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 crazy phrase, yeah. uh, you know, doing the same thing over and over again and expecting it to work. <laughs> right. <laughs> it doesn't make any sense. Well, I think there needs to be some cost. There's a, and again, you can't blame. Um, people in the modern era necessarily you know the students for example they'll read facts in a book and it could be something about you know muscle biochemistry or muscle fiber types or neurology or whatever it is and they read a one sentence line in a paragraph and they just sort of take it for granted because they didn't they didn't have the opportunity you know to live through the the period where those discoveries were made and you know how each one of those sentences in that paragraph which are so easily taken for granted those were huge advances you know, exactly. Exactly. And, yeah. Right. Yeah. So that's why it's good to get perspective from people who have, you know, like you said, you've been in contact with some of the founding fathers types of the field. You know, I got a, a couple more things I want to touch on that I think will be good topics and probably run us through here. Um, you know, another one the listeners want to touch on. What are your thoughts on, or if you've seen, there's kind of a resurgence in in raw powerlifting in the last five years. Um, a lot, a lot more people taking it up now. You know why? Um, because they agree with me. <laughs> <laughs> I figured it'd be something as simple as that. No, I agree. No, I mean, um, it's not me that they're agreeing with. It's agreeing with the same thing uh, I believe in. Yeah. That no, let's I think find out who the strong guy is. You know. Yeah. So yeah, I, I think it's a good thing. You know, I, I hate that it's being called raw. You know, yeah. <laughs> but you know, like like the other stuff is cooked. You know. <laughs> <laughs> The last thing that I want to touch on, um, and I think it'll probably start off a fire here. One of the things we touch on quite a bit is how there's seven million certifications for anything now. You know, we can go out and get certified in freaking. I just found out, Lonnie, you'll love this. There's a new certification out there for a gluten specialist. Fantastic. Certified gluten specialist. So yeah, um, I, I you know, is certified gluten specialist. Yes. <laughs> yeah, that's a new one that just came out. Um, oh, and it's it's just overly prevalent in, in this industry. Yeah. And 99.9% of these so-called certifications have no validity. Well, and, Phil, some of what you're just t talking about goes back to what uh, Dr. Hatfield was saying a moment ago about – or and you were too about a niche. You know why are there all these extremely specific certifications? Well, there's money to be made, especially with continuing uh, education and all that sort of thing. But right. they're increasingly niche. Everybody's got to do something that nobody else has already done, or you know, or at least to compete in that. So hey, let's get a. Or that they did 50 loop. years ago, abandoned because it was no good. You know? Yeah, yeah. You know, an example of that would be training with bands and chains. Well, we tried that stuff back in the early 60s and late 50s, and we abandoned all of that stuff because we found a better way. That's interesting. Yeah. 
but there, but but see, there are guys out there selling that stuff, yeah, yeah. and becoming gurus on bands and chains, yeah, yeah. and that's how they make their money. You know, you guys, know. An, another theme that we've had with with guests like Fred is that it's almost historical. Have you guys noticed this? I mean, it, quite by accident, but when you go to people who are knowledgeable because they live through these things, you know, they've seen trends come and go. Mm-hmm. Iron Radio has almost become a a repository of you know uh, of um, lifting history in a way <laughs> because you get well, insight from guys like Fred that you know <clears throat> you you can't find in a modern book necessarily. Yeah. And I'm tired of writing about it. I got to tell you, I've written <laughs> over sixty books, and I, you know, I, I just don't have much else to say. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I I want to ask about something that's just a little bit more of a fun kind of thing, but the infamous squat off that you had with Tom Platts during the WBF days. Yeah, that was fun. Yeah, I want to I want to hear about the whole story about that. Whose idea it was? How it came to be? How much time you had? You guys had? training for it and what the results were. Yeah. Well, Tom and I got to talking about it and we pitched the idea to Vince and Vince fell for it. We had a big, uh, <laughs> a big uh, uh, show at the, at the uh, FIBO in Germany. FIBO is like uh, uh, twice the size of the Arnold convention. You know, thousands upon thousands of people attend uh, this fitness convention. And so we had a stage with over 10,000 people crowded around her watching. And so Tom and I trained like crazy. We both lift, we both weighed about the same thing, right around 200 pounds. And, uh, but he, Tom was known for his legs in the sport of bodybuilding. And he had these humongous leg, legs. And no, anybody that looked at my legs compared to Tom's, they would say, definitely Tom's got the stronger legs. And, uh, but they didn't realize is that you don't squat just with legs. You, you you, you got to have a butt too and a lower back. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, anyway, long story short, we we uh, we got over there. Tom had uh, Bill Kazmaier standing behind him, and when he got up to uh, eight hundred some odd pounds, uh, he he missed the lift. But Bill deadlifted him up out of the hole, and it looked to the crowd like he made the lift. You follow me? Yeah. So they all cheered, and you know. And looked at me and said, what are you going to do to beat that, Fred? And I said, okay, put on two more 45 pounds. So I, I went up to a world <laughs> record, you know, 900 and uh, I think 955 or something like that. And uh, I didn't have Kazmaier standing behind me. I had some little wimpy guy. And uh, I made the lift. I made it. I, I cut it a little high, I, I admit it. But uh, I made the lift. And uh, then... Tom and I decided uh, we're going to see who could squat with 515 pounds the most times. Tom did 24. (laughs) I didn't have any prayer of doing that. I I stopped at 11 because I thought I was going to (laughs) die from the lactic acid, you know. And uh, So Tom beat me on that, but I beat him with the total total amount. The the reason I put on 245s was because somebody forgot to load up the smaller plates. There were no small plates, and they came after the squat was all over with. Somebody came along with a, a couple of fives and tens, so that we were able to jimmy it around with the uh, with the uh, with the uh, squat off for uh, reps. Uh, but uh, for the for the uh, big lift, uh, all we had was forty fives. That's why I had to put on two forty fives. I didn't want to. 
<laughs> no, that I think that's uh, that's definitely one of the things that'll go down in history is that squat off. Yeah, um, it's 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 kind of gained its own infamy yeah, on it, YouTube because it, the, sh- the the video of, of Platt squatting the five hundred and that kind of well, thing. So, so if it, yeah, it's on YouTube. I think if you watch yeah. it carefully, you'll see what I mean about Kazmaier picking him up out of the hole. Yeah. <laughs> it would make you feel <laughs> safe. <laughs> yep. Oh yeah, having Kaz behind you. <laughs> right. Hell, I'd attempt to foul. No kidding, yeah. right? Yeah. Right. So. No, do you, do you think that that emphasizes that you know bodybuilders are uh, better at volume and powerlifters are better at low rep, you know, explosive strength? Just just the results of what happened. I'm I'm sorry, you're breaking up a little bit. Okay, I was just suggesting that you said since Tom did so many reps, do you think that sort of emphasizes what bodybuilders are good at versus what powerlifters are good oh, at? Oh yes, of course, indeed, indeed. Yeah, yeah. that's what made Tom's oh, leg yeah. so big, you know. Sure. Well, and I mean, that goes back to your training, talking about, you know, you train to, you purposely trained yourself to turn on everything you have yeah. for one rep. Yeah, and I left everything you know? on the platform after three attempts, believe me. <laughs> exactly. Right. Yeah. So you, after rep five, you didn't have much left to right. give. Right, specificity oh. working against you. Yeah. That's exactly right. Yeah. Yeah. Very specific. Yeah. <clears throat> so where so. was it that you did that uh, world record? It was you... in, in uh, Essen, Germany, at the was FIBO. It? No, but where, where was it that you broke the squat record when oh, you broke the thousand? Hawaii. Where was it? That was that was over in Honolulu. Yeah, that was the world record breakers, or is that what they called it? That's right, the Budweiser record breakers. And that was the first official thousand pound squat, correct? No, no, everybody thinks that, and it really wasn't. I and I, I, I'm so tired of correcting people. The first person ever to ever to squat a thousand pounds unofficially was Dave Waddington. And okay. uh, he had his buddies judging him. So, And I, everybody knows how Dave squatted. He squatted with one foot in front of the other, almost like a one-legged squat, for heaven's sakes. And uh, so he never got low enough in the squat uh, position. And then the second guy was at the national championships, Lee Moran, who's dead now, uh, mm-hmm. a guy that was my height but weighed 330 pounds or more, uh, squat a thousand and three pounds. So he, Lee Moran was the first official squat, thousand pound squatter. He was a hell's angel from, uh, from, uh, Berkeley area. Oh, wow. So what impressed me so much was that you weren't one of those 300 pound guys. You know, you're punching well, up 800,000 pound squats, right? And, and you're not an enormous that. person. No, I'm a little guy. I'm, you know, I, just, <laughs> I bulked up, you know, to 255 pounds. Just so that I could squat a thousand. Yeah. And uh, and I remember I remember Bob Kennedy telling me a story back when I was an editor there in the in the early mid nineties, saying that you had told him or something that when you were bulking up to that weight, you felt felt very distressed weighing that much. Oh yeah, it was it was hard on me. It was hard on me. I was eating almost ten thousand calories a day. This is and, another theme uh, <laughs> with yes. us. I can relate. Yeah, yeah. Everybody's <laughs> force feeding, carrying extra body weight, getting uncomfortable. Yeah, yeah. And uh, so I was ever so glad that I finally did it, and uh, and uh, <laughs> I, I retired very shortly thereafter. Is that, um, you know, what would you say is your highlight of your career in powerlifting? Is that the thing you look upon as the best, or? 
Oh, I suppose so. You know, I mean, uh, it, you know, it, it, it brought me an awful lot of notoriety, as you yeah. can imagine. Everybody all of a sudden forgot Lee Moran because he was dead and gone. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, uh, but, uh, yeah, that's what, that's what uh, gave me the notoriety to go as far as I did in other fields. Uh, like, for example, my writing, you know, which became very popular. Yeah. And I sold a lot of books. So, with the last couple minutes here, what are you doing now? Are you still training? What do you got going on professionally? Uh, I, no, I'm retired. I I, um, I do a lot of boating. I do a lot of sitting around and talking with my wife. And I do a lot of writing. Uh, so, so a lot of spiritual stuff these days. Um, if you go to my Facebook page, you'll see what I mean. Mm. And, uh, uh, you know, I do little programs like this with you guys. I do a lot of them at least once a month. And I'm going out to California uh, to my home office at ISSA to do some more filming and uh, some updated video stuff for our uh, online presentations. So I'm, I stay busy. Yeah. But uh, I'm enjoying, enjoying myself. You know, I don't have to punch a clock or anything Do like that. Do you train it. at all still? Do you, oh, in, yeah. In yeah. I mean, I, I try to stay... You know, I, I had a, a real bad three or four years. I, I, was, I came down with cancer. Okay. And uh, that put me in a hospital for a long period of time. And, and then the cancer treatments just wore me out, gave me a horrible case of proctitis and uh, with a lot of ramifications afterwards. And then, uh, you know, included was uh, osteopenia and sarcopenia. So I, I wasted away to nothing. My weight went down to 100. 60 pounds. Oh, man. And uh, the very first thing I did was I uh, I fell and broke my leg. And then I broke my toe. And uh, and uh, and then because of a weakened immune system, I, I, I stayed sick with one thing or another for mm. a couple of years. But I'm finally coming back. Oh. <laughs> I feel a lot better these days, and I'm, I'm, I'm finally going back to the gym, and, and uh, I expect a full recovery. Good. The doctors gave me three months to live, fellas. Yeah. Really? Wow. Yeah. Because okay, it had right metastasized to my bones. Mm-hmm. And uh, when that happens, you're you're a goner. But yeah. good Lord must have been smiling at me because it disappeared. Yeah. That's good. Yes, it is. So did training <laughs> help you? Did training help you get back your, your life, so to speak? I can't claim that. What what I can claim, and what I believe was uh, instrumental, was I, I went on a very strict ketogenic diet, where I was taking in zero carbs. Interesting. Now, cancer cells need blood glucose yep. to operate. Without glucose, they the cancer cells die, and that's what I think happened. I think the, I think I killed the cancer with uh, with uh, going into ketosis. That, that was uh, my, my mother fought cancer, and that's one of the things we did. And uh, she, they gave her like six weeks to live, and we got four years. There you go. So, you go. You know, and uh, yeah, and I think you know that's that's one of the things that I researched too was that. And among the other things that these high carbohydrate diets are doing to people, you know, there you go. Well, it's been good. It's been great having you on, Fred. Thank you. Uh, I appreciate your calling, and uh, call me anytime. I enjoyed this. Yeah, it's been an honor, really. I don't get a chance to talk lifting that much anymore, and I appreciate it when I can get to do it. <laughs> We're glad you can give back like this. This is great. 
Yeah, we'll have to get some more topics together and just we'll have you on to just to talk shop. Definitely. Sure. Yeah. There you go. It'll be fun. Okay, well, until next time. Okay, fellas. Thank you Thanks very much. Iron Radio is accepting donations. If you like what we do, the professors, the scientists, the bodybuilding show promoters, the athletes themselves in powerlifting and bodybuilding, um, please consider making a donation or maybe buying something from the ironradio.org uh, store. Uh, we also are accepting supporting members. So for $4 a month, which is frankly less than the bank sneaks out of your account in fees, you can step up and support a form of sort of public radio for the bodybuilding and powerlifting and strength community. Hey, IronRadio.org listeners, this is Lonnie Lowry, and I'm just bringing you a sneak peek only for Iron Radio listeners at this point. If you Google CRC Press, Lowry, L-O-W-E-R-Y, and Protein, you can be some of the first people on the planet to see this book. It's specifically for strength athletes, Everything on the safety of high-protein diets, the efficacy, the dosing, the types, practical applications, and case studies. This is a textbook. It's not what I would call an industry book. This is not pseudoscience. This is the state-of-the-art science. And if someone wants to critique you on your extra protein intake, this will be something you can hold up and say, this is what the literature says about stressed kidneys or bone loss or gout or dehydration or increased muscle mass over time or leanness or what types are best. This is the ultimate source in one place. Little disclosure here. I do make a single digit percentage of royalties on this book. It's such a low amount. However, obviously I had done it for that purpose. I did it because like you, I want to have something I can hold up in one place. That's modern literature instead of what a, perhaps a health educator might tell you about the benefits and the potential concerns, if there are any on ample protein diets specific to a population like ours. Thank you. The Iron Radio podcast and all of the audio on ironradio.org is for informational purposes only. If you're interested in starting a diet or exercise program, it's important to check with your physician. Also seek the help of registered dietitians, athletic trainers, and qualified exercise physiologists in order to make the progress that you need.